Before we begin, please know that this podcast is intended for mature audiences. I am not a therapist or a doctor. Guests interviewed on this show express opinions that are their own, and nothing they say should take the place of a relationship with a medical or mental health professional. Please take care. Hello, and welcome to Resting Scared. My name's Mary, and today we have a super exciting episode. Um, I'm going to be talking with my friend Eli, and it's a bit of a long one, um, a long conversation, which is great. It was amazing to get to talk to them. Um, So I'm just going to keep this short and sweet, but I hope you enjoy. All right. Do we want to start? Let's start. Okay. Hi, Eli. I'm so excited to be talking to you. Um, We actually go way back. We go way back. (laughs) But, um, all right, why don't you introduce yourself and tell the people who you are? Hi, people. My name is Eli. I use they, them pronouns. I'm a non-binary human. I am queer, I am white, and I am someone who identifies as being in long-term recovery from physical disabilities, addiction, and mental health struggles. I am currently working full-time as a clinician, behavioral health clinician, and going to grad school to finish my master's of mental health counseling. And yeah. Um, And yeah, so we went to high school together. Um, I think we went to elementary school together. I guess, yeah. Yeah, we did. And I was so jealous of you and also um, admiring you when you played Madame Tenardier. Um, Oh, wow. This is like, Eli, this is your life. Yeah, sorry. All right. You didn't, you did not uh, sign up to be interviewed about high school. But anyway, I just, that just sticks out to me as one of the, just a good experience anyway. Well, since we're trading positive vibes, I have to say I've always looked up to you as well. I'm especially inspired by this whole podcast journey. I, (laughs) I admire your relationship. Um, you and I have talked a lot about what it means to be bisexual Mm -hmm. in, if you want to call it that, I am leaning more towards just like a generic queer Mm -hmm. label these days, but in a heteronormative world from a small town, we both have non-binary spouses, if I am correct. Yeah. And I really appreciate you having me here. I think you're the one of the easiest people to talk to, which makes me feel really comfortable to be here. So that's so nice. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I'm trying. This is definitely a journey. That is a really good <laughs> word to use. But... Kind of a toxic positivity word. Like, congrats on your journey. Listen. <laughs> It's exactly correct, though. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Okay, so you 
do you do work in um so I don't know how you would describe it like if you specialize or whatever but you do work in um like addiction substance abuse substance use world am I correct yes and good catch even my professor still says substance abuse and I think we can probably make the dot connection that that can be a stigmatizing term it's like right I slip up and say it and I'm not offended when people say it, but substances are used and I think it's just too subjective to say, well, what constitutes abuse? So in the DSM where we diagnose from, they changed the language from substance abuse to substance use disorder. Right. And it feels a little performative from a bunch of people that don't typically have mental health issues and addiction histories to be telling us as marginalized populations what the correct usage is. It's kind of like... But it's not offensive. Yeah. Yeah. I'm neurodivergent and I have been taught by neurotypical people to say people with autism, people with ADHD. And I'm like, you didn't consult anyone that was neurodivergent when you said that a lot of those of us who are neurodivergent are fine with being called autistic people or yeah ben and i were actually just talking about this the other day um how you know often if if you ask an autistic person they'll be like uh, I, i'm autistic i don't know like <laughs> <laughs> like yeah person um, with autism almost makes it sound more like a disease and less like something that's just a part of your life oh it's like the people on twitter who come for um you know fat activists that are like i'm fat and this is like how how i operate in the world and some woke doctor will like come on there and be like um i think you mean person who has obese (laughs) excuse me what (laughs) Yeah, I love having my own identities mansplained to me. (laughs) It's also like that response of, you're not fat, you're beautiful. Right. Yeah, no, yeah. Like those are mutually exclusive. Like, okay, you can't be beautiful and call yourself fat. I think there's a lot of value in letting people identify however they want. In bringing this back to addiction, Mm -hmm. Um, I told you I wasn't sure if I wanted to share that I have experience with the 12-step Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous community, Mm -hmm. but I do. And I guess something that has always really stuck out to me is that Narcotics Anonymous, which is the first 12-step fellowship I went to, said, you are a member when you say you are. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah, I love that. And does that mean like a member of the like recovery? I guess that's what that means. It's like a, is like a member of the recovery community of the, you know, 12 step community. How I take it is you can attend when you want to attend. There's nothing in the 12 step literature 
what you might call bylaws, the traditions and steps themselves mm -hmm. that require anything but per their own words, a desire to stay clean or a desire to stay sober, depending on if it's NA or AA. A member is someone that can attend closed meetings, you might say. Regardless, because it is a peer-led movement, mm -hmm. and because it's anonymous, everyone is essentially welcome. I've been in meetings where people are actively under the influence, and they weren't asked to leave. Right. They also weren't belligerent or just drunk or high, and they had a desire for that moment. For that. To be, yeah. Right. For that mm -hmm. hour to stay sober or stay clean, which I have varying opinions on the word clean, right? Yeah. That has a lot of icky connotations about like using is dirty, which isn't helpful. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So one of the reasons why I wanted to chat with you here on the pod um, is because I know that like addiction is something that is a real struggle um, to many people specifically like in the, I mean, to many people in general, but also specifically in like the chronic illness community and particularly with like chronic pain. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you have the possibility of addiction, you know, you know, to the like prescribed medications um, and then also the like self-medicating that can happen, you know, when you like, um, understandably are not getting relief and seek it out in some way or like you know we were just kind of talking about this um off mic but like this um thing of realizing down the line that you had been self-medicating when that wasn't necessarily like your intention like you didn't seek seek it out um mm -hmm. so yeah that was just something that I kind of wanted to talk about because I, I have a feeling that it is something that really that people are facing, you know? I don't know that I can have this conversation without bringing up opiates. Mm -hmm. I see so many folks in my practice. I've been a clinician, I should mention, since 2012, primarily in addiction, some stints in domestic violence, counseling, and sexual assault, advocacy and counseling, but so many folks that come to me addicted to opiates, often heroin, saying, I got started with a prescription. Right. And this isn't news. This has been going on for some time. But this tragedy and this trajectory of starting with a hydrocodone, an oxycodone, oxycontin, or other opiate prescription medications, and progressing, you might say, to something not prescribed, something illegal, something not necessarily inherently more dangerous, but often can be if it's not something you're getting from a pharmacy, you don't know what's in it and it can have fentanyl and you can overdose. Um, something about this really drove home for me that addiction can happen to anyone. 
Yep. And that's not to say that there's a moral superiority that's valid in saying like, if you only do heroin because you started taking opiates prescribed, right. you are more deserving of care and treatment or whatever, as opposed to someone that used recreationally, whatever that means, or just to use. And I think you and I chatted about this briefly mm -hmm. was it's valid in the harm reduction movement approach world to use because it feels good. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and I think, thank you for saying that because I do think that's like definitely something that's valid that just is not said very often. I mean, you just don't hear, I feel like, especially in the uh, social media like mm -hmm. world, you really don't see people um, making any room for, I don't know, for, for using maybe not for some, you know, horrific reason, um, you know, but maybe just because it's what they want to do. Um, so anyway, I want to get back to that, but I also wanted to bring it back and ask you if, um, I know just from, you know, knowing you that, uh, well, do you want to share about your health challenges as well? Yes. Thank you for asking permission. <laughs> I am someone who has been diagnosed with a myriad of things mm -hmm. between fibromyalgia, PCOS, only recently, despite knowing yep. down that I had it for years and despite asking medical professionals to please diagnose me for years, that recently happened. There's some pros and cons about having a label and a diagnosis that I won't mm -hmm. get into, mm -hmm. but I will say that particular diagnosis made me feel pretty validated Yeah, that I was in tune with my body and I knew I was infertile, for example. I knew that my skin was not like other people's skin. Um, I knew that my, I should say I'm a assigned female at birth, non-binary person, uh, obviously, like my reproductive health was not in a stable place. Um, so that recently happened, but I have a lot of psychiatric diagnosis that I will refrain from listing. And I have chronic migraines, fun. Fun. Yeah. I wonder, um, well, first of all, I am sorry to hear about the reproductive stuff. Um, it is one of those things that is so, it's so hard to talk about. And it's, I don't know, I've just found like in my own journey to use the term, um, <laughs> with it, it's, something that can be really it can be a conversation ender really quickly I've noticed like when you uh casually drop in that you have you know fertility issues um it's just amazing how much how awkward it can get how fast um I've noticed anyway in my life um can I speak to that 
Yeah, please. I just wanted to say what's also amazing to me is that we instantly reward, congratulate, celebrate pregnancy. Mm -hmm. It's something that is ubiquitous. It's talked about. It's, you know, always, if I shouldn't use always, you know, black and white language, but almost always looked at as this aspiration, this great thing um, that we feel so comfortable saying, like, how many times a day are you peeing? Is the baby pushing on your bladder? Like, well, people will go up to pregnant women and touch them unasked. Yeah. And I just bring this up to say that the second you say something about like a miscarriage or you say something about fertility issues, it's like we have no cultural sensitivity or language to talk about mm -hmm. the grief that's associated with that. It's like we're only obsessed with the Western conception of happiness and like pregnancy is always a happy thing. Reproductive right. health is always something that we want to, you know, have this erasure of the whole picture around. Right. Um, we just hyper-focus on what people feel more comfortable talking about, which I think is understandable in a way. Right. right. That's the thing, too, is, like, I do get that. Like, I, I also get that part of it, you know, wanting to, not wanting to, you know, go to the hard conversations, but I don't know. It just furthers the, the stigma and the, it just, you know, the more we don't talk about it, the more people aren't going to talk about it. I feel like if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and just to gently challenge you because I feel comfortable enough with you and I know yeah. that you'll take it well, uh, you don't have to be sorry. I think that that's a very kind response when you said, I'm sorry about your fertility issues. Um, oh, yeah. And it reminds me of this recent interaction I had where a client was disclosing to an observing intern clinician, uh, you know, a pretty significant health diagnosis. And his immediate reaction was, oh, no, which, of course, put him in a weird position to be like, no, it's OK. Right. Um, yeah. But also wasn't really taking into account, like, how he was feeling about it. And I don't think you meant to do that at all or anything. It just made me think of, you know, I had another client recently tell me that they were pregnant and I had to fight my own internalized stuff around not being like congratulations in that moment and taking mm -hmm. a step back and really being able to say like, you're pregnant. That's big news. Right. What, are your thoughts around this? Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, that there's, there's, it's important to um, also, I don't know how to, I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say here, but you can kind of take the, you know, what you know about people. And the context. I, the context. Sure. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there are definitely people, in my life, if they were to come to me and tell me that they were pregnant, I would not there. It, it would be, it would be weird for me to follow that up with like, Ooh, how you feeling? <laughs> because I know how they're feeling, you know? Understood. I mean? Yeah. And we've but, had conversations around like me, you know, wanting that in my life, like considering becoming a parent. And right. I think I've just made peace with the 
medical stuff that Mm -hmm. it's not going to happen for me, at least not easily. Right. That I don't know. I love my life. Mm -hmm. Um, That's something I mentioned on my little pilot that will shamelessly plug later, but that, (laughs) you know, loving my life is something that I feel like I have to constantly give myself permission to do um, because I am a disabled person. I do have chronic health issues. I am an addict, you might say. Uh, I'm a person in recovery, whatever that looks like. I'm mentally ill, which I hate that term, but I still mm-hmm. use it for myself because I think it, I think to say that I just have a personality style, like when my therapist said, like, is like seems, yeah, it, it's, it kind of minimizes and invalidates all the pain and suffering and struggle that mental illness brings with it. But um, I will say that. I have a lot of privilege. I have been so privileged to have resources like access to medical care, access to diagnostics. I went to a specialist on top of a specialist on top of a subspecialist in Syracuse at SUNY Upstate that gave me the fibro diagnosis, which I had been struggling with the symptoms of for years. But it always makes me think about how many folks don't have the privileges that I have to have insurance or Mm -hmm. the transportation to medical care or the lack of providers who are actively discriminatory, biased, stigmatizing. So I don't mean to get us off on like a weird trajectory, but no, I'm very grateful for the fact that I, know what's going on with my body, not just intuitively. Right. But to have that validated by medical professionals with diagnosis, which again is a loaded concept, but in this instance, in this context for me, um, there is a bit of freedom in knowing Mm -hmm. that like, it's not all in my head. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I really get that. And I wonder what the, um, and I I'm, wouldn't necessarily expect you to know this, like, on the top of your head, but I wonder what the, what's it called? Like, the the timeline from, like, onset of symptoms to diagnosis is. Because I know that for, like, interstitial cystitis and also this um, other condition that I have, it is, like, something, it's something ridiculous, like, 12 years or something like that, Um And it's just all of that. It just speaks to like how, like you said, you knew, you knew, you you suspected, (laughs) strongly suspected that this was a thing for years. Um, I'm looking at a study right now about obsessive compulsive disorder. mm -hmm. On average, it takes 17 years for patients to receive therapy. So that's just a quick Google (laughs) of one. Hmm? For OCD? For obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. Yeah. 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 Um, To speak on my mental health onset of symptoms to diagnosis trajectory, I didn't think I had a mental illness um, or a mental health disorder despite having intense mental health symptoms from a very young age. 
So my mood swings, crying spells, even suicidal journal entries uh, mm -hmm. started around uh, puberty. Um, so yes. I was about 10 and my family was luckily for me, really supportive, um, able to get me into therapy and psychiatry, uh, diagnostic evaluation treatment. But I just thought the world sucked. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know. <laughs> is fair. Is fair. And not know. untrue. Right. But I didn't see, because I didn't have the language for that. And I didn't obviously know about diagnostic criteria at 10. That right. that kind of persistent low mood, anhedonia, loss of joy in things sleep issues, appetite issues, all the criteria we see for things like major depressive disorder and dysthymia, cr chronic and persistent depression were coming up for me. I just thought, you know what? I hate everything. I hate myself. I hate my body. I hate all this stuff. And it's not even like that wasn't true because that's valid. And that was my perspective and there's something kind of othering and kind of sterile around saying oh it was just depression it oh, was yeah. just dysthymia like mm -hmm. it really wasn't something that I thought could get better or expected to get better because again I didn't know what it would be like to go to a therapist right. um but I will yeah go ahead oh, I was just gonna say yeah I I um so I definitely was having a lot of mental health struggles at a really young age. Mm. And I was seeing, um, I ended up seeing a therapist like for the first time when I was really young. Like, I don't even, I think pre-puberty, mm. so, like some sometime around like seven or eight, like around the time my parents were splitting up. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't until I was much older, like within... Um, it literally within the last like two years, year and a half that I was like, there, there's the anxiety that like, there's the generalized anxiety that I've been dealing with it to various levels my whole life. And there's the depression that I really feel like has gone pretty much hand in hand with it. Like, I do not think, I don't need to get into all this, but I like, don't think I would have depression clinical depression if I didn't have so much fucking anxiety. Like I really don't. Um, Absolutely. And, and um, it wasn't until, you know, fairly recently that I was like, there's another thing going on here that feels like it is, you know, it's a problem. It's a problem for my, like, my day-to-day -day life, my work life, my relationships. And that was when I started to, like, kind of talk more um, to my psych and therapist about, like, what is OCD? Yeah. <laughs> like, what does that look like? And, um, you know, I had found out that my um, therapist had been treating me for OCD and I did not realize that. Um, and, you know, she Curious was like, yeah, question, if I can interject, yeah. how did you feel about the fact that you had a diagnosis that she hadn't shared with you? Cause I wonder about that for my patients sometimes. Yeah. Um, I think that, 
I don't know. It was very validating, but mm-hmm. like I just feel like it could have been validating a lot sooner. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. um and you know, I don't always feel like diagnoses are super freeing, but this one really was not and I don't know freeing isn't the right word, but it was really like right. Like mm-hmm. that that is a specific thing that's happening. Um so yeah, anyway, it just you know, it, it obviously took a really long time. And and these things have been happening for a while. It's not like the onset of symptoms was two years ago. It's just like it started mm-hmm. to become a lot worse. Um, and I just started to wonder about that. Uh, so, yeah. But self-diagnosis is such, I want to say, a valid thing in like the neurodivergent mm-hmm. community. Uh, it definitely touches on the intuition episode that I love. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it's a huge burden because right. when people think about OCD, they think about a very specific stereotype or when they think about any particular diagnosis, they're often going off what they've seen in the media. If you're mm-hmm. not a trained clinician, or if you don't talk about and learn about diagnostic criteria day in and day out, how would you be expected to know what differentiates anxiety from something else. Right. Right. Exactly. And when I had someone recently in my life say, I'm having these intrusive thoughts, she had no language or concept of, you know, that being symptomatic of various things. And I can't diagnose my loved ones, nor would I, but I encouraged this person to go to therapy and um, just let her know that I think one of the worst things she could have done would be to consult Dr. Google because Mm -hmm. a lot of folks can get either misinformation or information that makes them think, well, I don't meet that specific, very clinical ease criteria. So I must not have this. So I'm going to let this go. Right. And I feel like a bit of a hypocrite because I've definitely consulted Dr. Google. I mean, (laughs) everybody has, it's everybody has. And I don't know, I, I really have released a lot of my guilt about it. I'm not saying it's, I, I understand that if we were to say that using you know googling your symptoms is objectively good or objectively bad if we had to say one of those things I would say sure it's objectively bad sure however there is so much there are so many reasons to do it that are valid and like I just yeah I think that makes a lot of sense and as a neurodivergent person I always say like TikTok diagnosed me like yeah (laughs) because of my algorithm I was like oh I relate to a lot of this Uh, I guess what I'm making, you know, a call to action for, if anything, is for folks to get evaluated by a professional with the caveat on the same side or the opposite side of the same token in the same breath being that, like, not all professionals are going to be a great fit for you. Oh, yeah. And I can't really go without mentioning that per insurance, we often have to diagnose someone in our first session. So we're talking about meeting them 
for 45 minutes and putting a diagnosis on them. And we don't have to unpack all that, but let's just say that diagnosis in and of itself is fraught with a lot of complexity. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely something to be said for folks who feel like I have this diagnosis and now there's treatment and now there's hope. And it's equally valid to say, like, I have this diagnosis and it feels overwhelming and crushing and labeling and pathologizing. Um, There isn't really a right way to feel about your diagnosis. And as a clinician, I would say there's not really a right or wrong time to clue in the patient on their diagnosis, depending on your rapport and how they're doing and how they might interpret it based on what you know about them, which is why I asked you, like, how did you feel about like not being clued into your diagnosis? Because I think that's an ongoing question. Yeah, definitely. Um, Sorry, we're so off track. No, it's okay. This is, you know, I <laughs> just to, you know, peel back the curtain. Is that the right word? Sure. A bit. I did, I did um, send for, for all of you listening out there, I did send Eli some um, like questions that we may get to as kind of just a, a way to, you know, guide the conversation. But I even said like, they're just meant to be, they're just meant to be prompts that we don't need to stick to them. Because, you know, we clearly I had a feeling that we would have we would find plenty to talk about <laughs> without me prompting. Oh, um, I appreciate that. And I also appreciate you being open to hard conversations, which is probably my favorite part about being a therapist is yeah. sitting with discomfort and leaning in to silence or yeah, just hard conversations. I heard it said recently, I love this quote and I forget who said it. Um, if you're not prepared to have hard conversations, be prepared to have hard relationships. Ooh, yeah. Mm-hmm. When I look at that from a professional lens, it means if I don't bring up potentially triggering or upsetting or uncomfortable things to my patients that I'm noticing about them, I am doing them a disservice in a big way if the reluctance to do so is about me and my stuff and my countertransference, like my feelings that are coming up because of this person. Um, Yeah. If I'm not having hard conversations in my personal life, then what happens? I, for example, might resent my spouse. I'm repressing that. I am becoming avoidant, which is something I struggle with when, uh, you know, they say we need to talk. I'm like, oh, I'm out. And I have to watch yeah. that and yeah. be like, oh, wait, no, we're having like a, a hard conversation. And right, that's okay. Right. Um, I guess I just was thinking of that because even from the get-go, before we really started talking, you know, I had challenged you around the term self-medicate. Uh, mm-hmm. And I appreciate that you are so open to being challenged. I know you have a lot of therapists in your life and I know you're like a very intentional, critical thinking person, but I wouldn't feel this comfortable with most people 
I think, um, to say something like, hey, this term is upsetting to me or triggering to me or mm -hmm. um, fraught with issues or whatever it is, uh, let's talk about it. But I know that, right. you know, you are open to that kind of discussion. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I really think it's important to, um, you know, when somebody is challenging you, challenging something you've said to, you know, listen to it and to kind of take a step back first and remember that depending on who it is and depending on the situation, because sometimes people just aren't being, you know, dicks, but um, generally people are not trying to call you out. They're trying to call you in. And um, mm. I think that that's just something that I try to be really aware of. And um, because yeah, it doesn't really work to just be, um, you know, getting uh, super defensive all the time, even, even if that's reactive. Like, right. Right. Um, so just to bring it back to like the, uh, you know, substance use side of things, um, I wanted to, uh, one of the things that I love about your, you know, content on social media and stuff is this, so you talk a lot about, um, not gatekeeping sobriety and that it looking different for everyone. And it's just really, really resonated with me. Why? Um, so I, I have, okay. I have started drinking in my early twenties, I guess. Mm -hmm. And at that point it was very much a social thing, mm -hmm. but it did feel like a requirement, like mm. a, like a requirement to have friends and to have fun and mm. to have a good time. Mm -hmm. Um, and I re truly remember thinking very early on that this was like not a sustainable way to live because it was, it was a lot, you know? Um, but I never really worried about it too much. Like, you know, as I got older, I wasn't, you know, I was not drinking as much. I was not just partying all the time. Um, but then, when the pandemic hit, I really like my anxiety was so bad. My health anxiety was so bad. It, it, and I really started drinking a lot. Mm -hmm. And I know that I know that this is something that I've heard other people talk about, but it became this thing of like, well, how long is this really going to last? It can just be a party like we can just, you know, and then it just kept going and going and going and of course, like the more you, you know, alcohol is a depressant and like the more you drink, it doesn't actually help your anxiety or your depression at all. Like it, it really was bumming me out, like mm -hmm. on such a, I guess, like a chemical level. Mm -hmm. um, so I started to get really worried about it. Um, and I was really like truly panicking about how much I was drinking. And it definitely became a like, a huge obsession um for my for my OCD to just fixate on like it became a it became a big thing um and I do feel like I have a much better relationship with drinking now like it's completely it looks completely different than it did at the beginning of the pandemic for example um and maybe honestly it might be 
a healthier relationship than I've really ever had with it. But Mm -hmm. basically I feel like I, this is a very long-winded response to what you asked, but basically I feel like I always was kind of taught that it is either, you are either, you know, actively in addiction and using and a mess and like, therefore a mess, or you are sober and clean and, you know, have your life together. And there's not really a balance in there. Like you, if you have ever struggled, then you will only ever struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, just hearing about that, about the idea of harm reduction and about it looking different for everyone has been, yeah, it's just been really interesting to me. And yeah, I don't know. You want to talk more on that about, you know, your thoughts around that? Well, there's a lot there. <laughs> um, I guess one thing that sticks out to me is that alcohol is a depressant in that it slows the central nervous system and it certainly can increase psychological issues. That's one of the diagnostic criteria for having a substance use disorder through the DSM-5, which is not the only way to gauge alcoholism, addiction, substance use disorders, but that's what a lot of us are working with. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't inherently create like depression in everybody. It can worsen it for sure. It also affects um, the same receptors as things like benzodiazepines. Um, so often because our body gets so used to the central nervous system depressant and calming, you might say, effects. Right. That's when, you know, tolerance can turn to what they call chemical dependency, which can lead to withdrawal, which can lead to, in the worst case scenario, seizures, shaking, delirium, tremens. Yeah. Um, But at the less severe level, just like feeling worse and feeling more anxious. And like you said, there's a huge link between anxiety and depression. Um, I know my clients will say I have to drink before I go to sleep because it helps me sleep better. Uh, I have to smoke, you know, THC, cannabis, weed, Mm -hmm. uh, whatever, before I go to bed because it helps me sleep better. And that's anecdotally their belief. Um, But we know that alcohol can disrupt sleep patterns. Um, And I think there's, again, um, a lot of like misconceptions um, about even things like nicotine that, you know, it's going to um, make me feel less stressed. And what I often talk to folks about is that you have this substance, this drug that is making you feel less craving and more at peace, you might say, um, because the addiction, the receptors that are crying out for this nicotine are being sated, uh, but it's still a stimulant. So I guess I'm just really fascinated by some of the science behind 
like a lot of addiction and mental health issues yeah. because it was something that I never knew about despite being in, you know, the rooms of the 12 step programs for a long time, or even like in my KSAC training to be a state licensed, um, alcohol and substance use disorder counselor, the more I'm learning, the more it, it's really making sense. And I think looking at a drug is a drug is a drug makes sense in that whatever I'm putting in my body is going to have a reaction. Mm-hmm. So if I already, my baseline is a six out of 10 anxiety and I put something in my body that makes my anxiety temporarily <laughs> lessen, mm-hmm. that could become addictive, that feeling. I don't have a like exclusively negative associations with my drug use, which I think is like a myth that mm-hmm. you have to engage in that narrative if you're in recovery. And what we found is that's really like creating more pathological demand avoidance, right? Like that's some weird way of forcing people into being like, well, wait, and digging their heels deeper. So by normalizing that like there were good times uh for me you know there there can be like two things can be true right like someone can come to me and say i'm really worried about my drinking which i think i said already is like a huge step and a big deal that i would validate someone for and also they can say like alcohol is my best friend, or I love drinking. Like I've said these things, um, that they have really good memories of nights out with people that alcohol was involved with or whatever. Right. But what we try to do in addiction counseling, at least what I've been kind of taught to do, and this is part of like smart recovery, which I'd be remiss not to mention, um, more CBT based, uh, peer support is like, look at all the reasons you use. Mm-hmm. It makes my physical pain go away or lessen. It makes my mental health symptoms go away or lessen. Um, look at all the reasons that using is damaging to you. Well, I feel out of control or it affects mm-hmm. you know, my personal relationships. Uh, we often talk about something becoming a disorder when it impacts our life. Right. Um, and then we look at all the like negatives of sobriety. Like I'm going to feel awkward in parties where people don't know what to offer me. Um, I am taught this myth of abstinence only where I can never smoke weed again. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, I got 
sober originally when I was 21 years old and I'm thinking I can never have a glass of champagne at my wedding. I don't actually like champagne, but <laughs> the thought of staying sober forever and abstinent forever is so overwhelming to folks right. that it can make them just dig their heels in more, like I said, or want to just not consider recovery at all. Harm reduction is supposed to be right. this gentler, softer, and honestly more of a public health approach right. sort of way. That's what it's rooted in, um, that whole movement that says, let's take all those negative things that you talked about, like drugs and alcohol, alcohol's a drug, but like mm -hmm. all these substances doing to you, like all these things that are negative, and let's just try to like walk them back a little bit. So right. harm reduction says that you don't have to 100% swear off all alcohol, all substances for the rest of your life. Right. To be sober, to be in recovery. Yeah. Um, I really wanted to share with you a definition of recovery that I use with my patients, I use for myself. I texted it to you. It's from uh, SAMHSA, the substance abuse. See, people still say it. Let's see. Mental Health Services Administration. Mm -hmm. And it talks about recovery as this in like a pie chart kind of way, which yeah. I kind of like. Um, here's the full, here's the full, uh, link, but overcoming or managing one's diseases or symptoms, making informed, healthy choices. That's the health piece home, having a stable and safe place to live. So we can see already how there are populations that are more marginalized and less able to approach recovery, right? Um, you know, housing instability and insecurity, scarcity being a huge one. Purpose, meaningful daily activities, such as a job. The anti-capitalist in me takes issue with that, but <laughs> school, <laughs> volunteerism, family caretaking, creative endeavors, whatever it is for you, like that gives you purpose. Community, relationships, and social networks that provide friendship, love, and support. Um, it talks about some other stuff too, like hope, which uh, we often hear about spirituality and like the AA 12-step world as being inherently necessary or at least helpful for recovery. Mm -hmm. And I would say hope is a, a type of spirituality. Absolutely. Um, recovery is person-driven, holistic, supported by peers, culturally based addresses trauma based on respect. And the last one I just wanted to um, touch on is on the fifth page. It says recovery occurs in many pathways. And that was so life-changing for me. Yeah. Um, there is no wrong way to get sober or be in recovery for my money. Mm -hmm. um, if someone is California sober, so they drink to whatever level they're comfortable with or use THC to whatever level they're comfortable with, um, 
that's recovery for them. And they get to define that kind of like how I said earlier, like you are a member of X, Y, Z community when you say you are. Yep. I just think it's really powerful. And I think it also really opens the, you know, this idea that recovery occurs in many pathways. It just makes it, I I think, you know, to what you said earlier, I think so many, a lot of people who might worry about their, you know, alcohol use or other substance use, um, maybe don't ever take a closer look at all or don't even want to entertain the idea of any sort of recovery because they see it as an all or nothing thing. And hundred percent, the all or nothing aspect of it is just really, it's just, okay, great. Another thing I'm just going to fail at, like, that's what I need, you know, like, I think that can be a really such a turnoff in so many ways. Um, a turnoff and dangerous. Right. MC, because in the rooms of the 12 steps, let's say you have 20 years sobriety, just to throw out a number of absence only sobriety. And then you have a single drink or a half a shot. Right. In that culture, you are nothing again. And I, and I get that there is a place for... Um, that, you know, there is a place for abstinence only, you know, either, of course there is, um, but to look at it as the only way um, of recovering or being in recovery or working on, you know, working on your vices, I just think that it shuts a lot of doors. So, well, why I brought that up was because let's say you are that person with 20 years who relapses, sometimes people call it a reoccurrence. Mm -hmm. I would call it like, what it is. If you drank, then you drank. You don't need to like call it anything in particular that can be shaming. Right. Um, then what does that mean and look like for that person? Well, now they feel ashamed and worse. Now they're disincentivized from being honest and coming forward and saying like, yes, I had a drink. They are reinforcing that entire internalized stigma around like and mental health negative self-talk around like, I'm a failure. Um, Mm -hmm. Like you said, it's another thing for me to fuck up at. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really not effective at the end of the day for, you know, people's overall wellness to shame them for a single reoccurrence. And to extrapolate that, it's also really ineffective to shame anyone for continued or ongoing use of whatever. There are people out there in the 12-step community or in the recovery community that feel you should not take prescription medications. There was a whole write-up in the Syracuse paper around a group allegedly saying you should not take psychiatric medications. And these are not doctors, and this is dangerous. I, I struggle to not say propaganda, Um, But these are dangerous messages. And I just, if I could leave folks with anything, I would want them to know that there's no wrong way to be sober. If that looks like I've had clients go from drinking a third less than what they used to, that's a successful thing, that a goal that you can complete because it's their goal. Yeah. Um, Bringing it back to chronic health, like I know so many folks who have to take prescription opioids and take them as prescribed. Are they chemically addicted? Sure. The body naturally develops a tolerance, but is it problematic? Is it affecting their daily life? Are they 
engaging in taking more than prescribed or like driving under the influence and hurting themselves. Like, no. So all this to say, if someone is concerned about their substance use, often I'll ask them, like you've said, what is your relationship to alcohol? Mm -hmm. Um, What is the dynamic between alcohol or this substance and your life and your functioning, um, your mental health, your wellness, as opposed to making assumptions and just overwhelming them with this idea that they just have to stop, which is not only potentially really dangerous, if like someone is coming to me who drinks every day and is chemically dependent, they could have a seizure if they just stop cold turkey and would need to go to detox or have like medical intervention. Um, But it's also like not effective and not helpful to cast your own stuff like being pro-abstinence only on somebody that isn't interested in that. It just makes me think of like, um, what is the purpose of Mm. anything? What is the purpose of recovery? What is the purpose of, you know, confronting your addictions? Mm. What is the purpose of it? Is the purpose to be, you know, to, to, feel better about your life, feel better physically, feel better mentally, or is the purpose to be better than everyone else? <laughs> like, yeah. I feel like that's, that's sometimes where I get defensive about the abstinence only thing is because I'm like, you yeah, know, I get that it works for some people, but to be pushing that on everyone and to be like, you're, you're not doing it if you're not abstaining completely, then it's right. like, well, what is the goal here? Is the goal, like you said, like a public health situation or is the goal to be able to say, you know, I have been this exact definition of sober for X amount of years. And therefore I'm better than you. And my recovery is better than you. I am morally superior. I am more sober. I'm more sober. Yeah. Um, That doesn't help anyone. It's not helpful to think in those terms. I think even though plenty of people do, I don't want folks to take away from this that I'm completely just shitting on the program of the 12 steps because as flawed as it may be, um, I think there's room for interpretation. Should you get like a really cooperative or open-minded sponsor, et cetera, like there's a way Mm -hmm. to do it that it doesn't have to be like totally out of line with your goals or totally shaming. Um, I think that is the case for a lot of folks, but I also know people in the rooms that say the person who is the most sober in the room is a person who woke up the earliest. Like, it's just a joke <laughs> by saying, like, you know, I've heard someone in, in NA tell me I don't count my days because people talk about being day counters from the yeah. last day they imbibed any substance. I make my days count, which is a cute little slogan, oh, it but cute. it's also, like, legitimate. Absolutely. I I kind of love that. I don't like to typically discuss my clean day, if you want to call it that, my date of last use, as we would say clinically, Um, the date that I overdosed and woke up in a hospital. Um, Because I think it puts a lot out there. Like there tends to be this hierarchical nature that the further away and longer ago your clean date is like the better you are, the be- right. more recovered you are. 
And really, it's an ongoing daily thing, just like managing my physical health conditions, just like mm-hmm. managing my mental health um, symptoms daily. Recovery is something that I have to, addiction recovery specifically, is something that I have to address daily. Um, and that is language that I picked up from the 12-step rooms. It mm-hmm. talks about having a daily reprieve. So like I said, there are some parts that have really yeah. been helpful. Um, I don't think it's helpful to think of terms and like I'm recovered or I've arrived or I'm cured. And that was my issue with, you know, the word to self-medicate. Right. Because I think it like implies that there is like this lack of medical care, this lack of cure. Um, when I don't think substance use always has to be looked at as disordered. Um, I think, again, people can just use because they use because they use. And whether it's impacting different parts of their life or not, like at the end of the day, they get to decide what they want to do about it and are just as worthy of care and treatment or just human compassion and resources and housing and job as anyone else. Yeah. Um, All right. I think I'm going to start to wind this down here. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you a couple questions that I like to close interviews with. Um, So what is the best or worst thing a medical or mental health professional has ever said to you? Um, you, you can say both of these things, or you can say one of them either way. Okay. Um, I had a therapist say, you know, your workaholism isn't necessarily something to celebrate. It's a trauma response. It is, she was very direct about it. And it is something that is, you know, capitalistic in nature. Um, It's socially reinforced, but ultimately it is about you trying to achieve perfection, be observed as a high achiever and a way to keep yourself constantly busy and moving so that you can avoid feeling your feelings. Mm-hmm. Which I think I already knew in a way. Right, right. But <laughs> hearing her say it was life-changing. And that's why I have really had to unpack and examine my relationship to capitalism, especially as a disabled person that got approved for social security disability and chooses to work. I guess I would say has to work because I cannot afford to live on right. the amount that they were going to give me. Right. Um, but I am blessed and grateful to love what I do. Uh, so really, I wanted to plug Rest is Resistance by Trisha Hersey because um, she from the NAP ministry has really taught me how to question um, this idea that like I don't need rest and who does that benefit? Yeah. Um, versus like I fucking deserve rest just because I'm a person. Just because I'm a person. Yep. Love that. Rest is resistance. Yeah, I do follow the nap ministry, but um 
I have literally bought so many copies of that book. I bought an audio version for me. I bought a physical version for me. I bought a copy of it for my race class and gender professor. I bought a copy of it for my best friend and copy for my sister-in-law. So yeah, it's, Amazing. it's been life-changing. Um, so do you want to say a worse thing or do we want to move on to the next question? Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you the worst thing. The worst thing, uh, physical health doctor ever said to me, this was, uh, when I had gained not just like 10 or 20 pounds, but like a substantial amount of weight, let's just say, mm -hmm. um, not that that's not substantial and not like cause for concern, but let's just say like, I almost like doubled my weight, <laughs> um, because of psych medications mm -hmm. and the prescriber said to me, would you rather be fat or in a box, like dead in a box is what he meant. Um, and we don't have time to unpack all that, but Ooh, I, no. think, <laughs> I think that just goes to show that like you and I have mentioned mental health and its medications and treatment affect physical health and its medications and treatment affect mental health yep. and addiction, you know, plays into there as well. Yeah. Um, so there's no real way to divorce all those things. And I think that's why, um, to kind of put a positive spin on that story, I think that's why, you know, I so practice from a complementary and holistic approach as much as possible because uh, symptoms do not exist in a vacuum. Yeah. And I will just say, um, I know that I don't have to say this and I'm not saying this because I feel awkward and don't know what to say. I'm saying this because I mean it. I am truly so sorry that somebody said that to you because it is, it is such an inflammatory thing to say to someone. And like you said, we don't have time to unpack all of it, but it's just, it's just, it's fucked up. And it is. And I appreciate it. Maybe I have to work on my own stuff around like people apologizing to me for things. <laughs> I know. I'm not, I'm not certainly not apologizing on behalf of myself. I'm a, and I'm not yeah. half of the doctor. I'm just literally like, thank that, you. You should not have had to hear that. You should not have, somebody should not have said that to you. And like, it just, yeah. Yeah. My first reaction is to be like, but, 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 and like reframe it into this positive thing around like, you know, it's given me so much perspective about like discrimination, anti-fat bias. And, but, but like, I think you're right. Sometimes the simplest truth is just like what's in front of you. And like, it just sucks. Like it's, yeah. it was just a shitty experience. I don't need to like reframe it and put a pretty bow on it. Right. And I've found a way to share that, which is like helpful uh, reflect on it and also like to be chubby or fat or whatever and be alive so fuck him because yeah. I I did it yeah. <laughs> and he was wrong we're doing it like it's um, doing it there's there's a yeah a lot of ways to be fat and alive um <laughs> woof. I just that just yeah <sighs> yeah that was rough yeah um okay so what is your favorite way that you show yourself love? Yeah, staying sober is such a cliche answer. No. Um, and that doesn't mean that I don't identify as someone in harm reduction recovery that like, you know, takes prescribed controlled substances like here and there as needed or whatever. But uh, sober to me, being in recovery for me is about loving myself. I've said this, you know, 
um, before. It's like, instead of self-destruction, I choose self-love. Instead of self-hate, I choose recovery. Um, and it's an ongoing daily commitment. I was going to say struggle, but it's something that I commit to every day. Some days are being about, are more about being gentle with myself. Some days are more about powering through the executive dysfunction and like taking a shower, which mm -hmm. can feel really hard when I'm having fibro flare-ups or whatever. But at the end of the day, like just loving myself um, through recovery uh, is the best thing that I found I can do for me. And secondarily for, you know, people like my spouse, um, I wouldn't be me and functioning and happy and healthy if I wasn't focusing on my holistic recovery and sobriety. Um, so I continue to act as if even when I have moments of thinking like I don't deserve to be happy and healthy, I know that that's just like a thought and it doesn't have to be the reality. So long-winded way of saying uh, I'm still identifying as someone in recovery and I still try to, you know, work on my sobriety every day. Mm -hmm. I love that. Thank you. Okay. So where can the people find you and do you have anything to plug? Yeah, where I am, you know, trying to put out this poetry memoir, totally not a clinical thing yeah. um, called Artless Hands. Uh, that is my TikTok uh, username. Um, I am on Eli at Nothing Feels Good on Instagram. And then I'm with your inspiration, trying to start my podcast, Nothing Feels Good, available on Spotify, uh, spring 2023, which is like now-ish. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And I think that's pretty much it. Um, I can't thank you enough for letting me ramble to you for bringing, uh, you know, a safe and brave and challengeable, if that's a word, space <laughs> um, to talk about things I'm so passionate about that I think are so integral to those of us struggling with physical health, chronic health issues, and, uh, you know, things like mental health issues and addiction and how they all impact each other. Uh, I feel like I look so forward to the rest of your episodes and uh, maybe we'll talk again. Yes. Thank you so much. No, this has been great. And I really, when I thought about doing a, um, well, the term I had been using was a self-medicating episode or a med an episode on that. You were honestly the first person that came to mind. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. So um, I just really appreciate you being here. And yeah, everybody go follow um, Eli on TikTok at Artless Hands and on Instagram at Eli at Nothing, Nothing Feels Good. Perfect. And I will also put those in the show notes um, so people can just go ahead and follow you. And thank you so much. Well, there you have it, my friends. Um, I just want to say thank you again to Eli for such a just really honest and candid conversation. Um, so don't forget to go follow them, and I will put their handles in the show notes. 
and thank you so much for being here once again with me um i hope this week is kind to you and i hope you're you know able to be kind to others (laughs) um and i can't wait to talk to you soon bye